0: This podcast is brought to you by International SOS, the world's leading health and security services company. Welcome everyone to the first broadcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rod. Every day there's a new health trend or wellness topic in the news, whether it's plant-based diets, juicing, or meditation. The list is endless. On the broadcast, we'll be chatting to a range of globally renowned health experts who will be cutting through the noise and sharing their thoughts through a science-based lens. So my guest today is a very charismatic, very smart, very intelligent swab. Um, individual I've had the pleasure of working with. He's been the medical director for 20 plus years. Uh, He's currently the global medical director for Schlumberger and looks after the health and well being of over 104,000 people spread all over the world. Uh, Welcome, Dr. John O'Keefe.
1: Hey, thank you very much, Rod. It's um, a real pleasure to be here and, and to have a chance to kind of talk uh, about all things health and well-being, so really appreciate the invitation.
0: No, uh, the the pleasures all, all mine. The honors all mine. Uh, so you've you've had, I mean, uh, a number of of different roles, and I, I would say, you're you're maybe an outlier in, in the medical world, and in, in the sense that you you did medicine, and then you also did a, an MBA, right?
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm a. Um, uh, commitment phobe uh, in that uh, I, I had a lot of difficulty deciding what kind of doctor I wanted to become until I became a medical director uh, advising industry. And um, I started out as a pediatric trainee. I did a lot of neonatology and pediatrics and worked in, in London and in Great Ormond Street for a little bit. Um, did uh, enough in cardiovascular and transplant medicine there to know that hospital medicine, I, I didn't fancy my life being centralized around a, a single location. And uh, I then went to Uganda um, for a year as a volunteer with a VSO, volunteer services overseas, worked on the border um, of Rwanda and the DRC for, for a year uh, in Uganda in a government facility. And that taught me an awful lot about health systems management. I, I kind of I I whet my appetite for for that area of um, intervention and started to understand a lot about how often the physician at the front line, the nurse, the doctor, the the person treating the the patient was constrained and had their hands tied by the health system, resources, Um, even simple things such as the road and the access to the health center could determine whether a person got pregnancy care during a, a difficult labor or whether that person ended up living or dying. So health system design, health system structure, access to healthcare, care, um, and the broader broader public health agenda became something uh, I, I was aware of at that stage. I then retrained and uh, worked with International SOS for a number of years in, in Vietnam. Uh, came back and, and did some work in London as part of the, the team there supporting European uh, industries. And uh, I had a very, I guess, interesting moment where I was supporting projects into the Arctic where remote workers were on vessels and they could only access specialist care if if the vessel was pointing the right direction to get the right satellite signal so that you could transmit sufficient bandwidth to have an image of a person inside that vessel that was bobbing about in the Arctic Ocean. And that, that I think crystallized a lot of things for me, which is that health system design, digital connectivity, and remote health support can deliver enormous upgrades in care for people, um, significant advancements uh, in, in the access of, of expert opinion to people in very remote locations. So that's been my passion since then. I've been involved in digital health and set up a couple of different companies. And as you said, I, I, um, I went ahead and did a, a master's uh, in business, um, which is, you know, go, it, 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 it requires the joke, which is how do you know a person has a, a master's as well as a, a medical degree? Well, they, they always tell you. So um, <laughs> it's <laughs> one of those things. But, um, you know, I, I've just been really fortunate to work with great people in great industries uh, and to be at an exciting time in digital health development.
0: Yeah, and, and obviously with COVID, one of the, the major issues was, was access to, to care, you know, either because facilities were, were repurposed or, you know, shut down. I mean, have you seen uh, the change that, you know, we've, we've all been hoping for, sort of that catalyst in terms of telemedicine and, and digital health?
1: Yes, for certain, it's, it's accelerated the adoption and the, the normalization of, of consultations taking place remotely. A lot of people, whether it's um, counseling that they've received or specialist care and, and review, you know, with a cardiologist, or with an oncologist or uh, physiotherapy, you know, those services are all now routinely delivered in many circumstances um, through a video screen. And people feel comfortable with them actually i think i think their initial reaction so from what i've seen with patients is they're not comfortable with the idea yeah i want to see my doctor i want my doctor to see me i want my doctor to put his hand her hand on on me so that i understand that i have had a a full and intimate and personal consultation Um, but when they've had an experience of of having a remote consultation there are some benefits, you know, they, they don't have to abandon the location that they're in to drive through traffic, to um, perhaps wait in line with people in a facility. They don't have to expose themselves to COVID-19 or other viruses that might be in a healthcare location. And they can get almost all, if not often, all of the information that they're looking for to make a joint management decision with their specialist. So, I, I, have, I have really enjoyed that aspect of digital healthcare evolution in the last couple of years, because it's a verification of what I I suspected was the case, that this can work really well for people and that we can access care and and distribute care in a different manner. I I remember one patient, Rod, who was on um, the vessel that I was speaking about uh, within the Arctic Circle. This was in about 2013, and um, he was two and a half days sail into... Ilulisat, which is one of the, the ports in Greenland, on this particular vessel doing some seismic work. And um, he developed abdominal pain. And so the question was, should they turn for sure? What was the likely diagnosis and whether or not um, this guy needed to be disembarked? Um, you know, Lots of different things can cause abdominal pain. And some of them are mild, some of them are serious, and some of them are emergencies. So we... We managed, as I said, to point, to ask the captain of the ship to point, uh, I think it was like seven degrees of north, to be able to access a satellite feed. And we were able to get a picture of this gentleman's sclera. And it was, he had jaundice, so he had an obstructive jaundice condition with uh, right upper quadrant pain. And it was a, an emergency, so he they needed to turn the vessel to shore. And we were able to take that decision. Um, with with the support of everybody involved uh there was a delay to the project of course but but ultimately we did the right thing by this guy and got him to shore to get him surgery in greenland which took place and uh he survived and and did very well subsequently but that's just one example
0: wow you, you you're you're such a magnet for for interesting interesting stories and hairy situations um uh john is is a a avid and very good cycler and uh, regularly organizes um, cycling trips. and And I remember the the last one we, we met up. Um, didn't you have two acute uh, cases on on the on the flight you were on, or some <laughs> something like
1: that? Yeah, people talk. People talk about being a magnet for for the wrong. Thing happening, and, and I've had, a, 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 as a, I'm sure a lot of doctors have, have had situations in public where they've been called on to resuscitate people. But I was on one flight from Amsterdam to Majorca. It was a connecting flight I had I'd flown from London to, to Amsterdam and then on to, to Majorca. And during the flight, um, the gentleman beside me started to, to breathe awkwardly and then stopped breathing altogether. And I stood up and looked at him. He was slate gray colored. Um, I asked myself the question, is this fellow in in serious danger? So he didn't look too good. I shook him to try and rouse him and then thumped his chest and then called for assistance. And we, we got him down on, on the aisle during the flight. We were over the south of France at this point flying. And during trying to resuscitate him, going through airway, breathing, circulation, getting some oxygen, Uh, calling for help. Um, Somebody else on the opposite aisle, right beside us, but in the opposite set of seats, uh, also stopped breathing. And it was a friend of this particular gentleman. So two two of them had a respiratory arrest within seconds of each other, within minutes. And so we were resuscitating both individuals on the flight. And, And just before the second guy had his arrest, um the the air hostess we seem to be getting the first gentleman back and he started to get his color and he started breathing again fortunately he was coming around she said do you think we should divert the flight and i said well you know maybe just let's give it a couple of more minutes see how this gentleman does and as i said that the second case had his respiratory arrest oh my goodness. so i just said please tell the captain take the flight down to wherever you can go you know asap um so they did that they disembarked the two gentlemen um who apparently their friends who were on the same flight said that they had, had a cocktail of diazepam and uh and alcohol uh, before they got on board that was their breakfast and that's why they they, no, they, no. they each had a respiratory rest within minutes of each other on the same flight but uh yeah i i i, I had a couple of episodes like that and i, I don't recommend that anybody flies with me
0: <laughs> no no that's that's uh, good to know but that's uh i mean what are the chances two two in two in one um, that's unbelievable, and you know and in, in terms of you know an evolving uh landscape from from a healthcare perspective do you do you feel that companies that aren't or weren't traditionally in in the healthcare space i mean I know Schlumberger's had an excellent track record of you know having occupational health and Medical service provision for its employees, but but with your involvement, you know, traveling the world, you know, do you, do you think that is something that will stay as we transition to endemic and you know people forget about COVID? Do you think companies will will maintain that interest in in health or or do you think people have you know really short term memories? Gosh, I
1: I I suspect that there will be some companies that will say health for the future of our employees is a win-win strategy. And I call it a win-win-win strategy because shareholders benefit from employees who are healthy and happy ultimately because we are a more competitive organization and we do our job better and we are able to deliver for the the company ultimately and for shareholders. So it's a win-win-win strategy. Everybody benefits when you invest in the healthcare of workers, the health and well-being of workers. And, and, you know, it's easy to say that, but today people have a lot of options. They don't have to work for manufacturing, they don't have to work for oil and gas, they don't have to work in areas where um, they consider their future lies elsewhere. So, for example, you know, if you want to work in a high-tech environment, your natural choice will be one of the high tech companies um, offering opportunities in that space. But it isn't not necessarily immediate or natural for you to want to work in an industry such as the energy transition that's taking place that Slumberjay is part of. And therefore health needs to be part of what we're offering to uh, attract the best talent and to retain the talent that we have.
0: No, ab- absolutely. Um... Well, I certainly hope you know it'll it'll stay at the at the forefront of of uh, you know CEOs and decision makers, you know, as as we move forward. And and you and I have struggled probably with the same issue in that you know we're so passionate about health, and for us it's it's a no brainer. But sometimes we struggle to to convince um, decision makers, you know. Per string holders to, to, to invest. Um, can you remember sort of a, a time an instance, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a story that comes to mind where, mm-hmm. where you saw, you literally could see, you know, the white in, in the pupils of, of the person in front of you, you know, their eye, the decision makers eye, that aha moment when they, when they got it. And, and they said, ah, I understand now, and, and, and how did you get them to, to, to that place?
1: Well, the, the, the principle of alignment between, say, a, a medical advisor and his or her HSE team and then the, the business side of things, the, 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 the purse holders, the budget and funders, uh, the, the principle of alignment comes from sharing data. And, and that, that's really important. You know, medical advisors, we can talk about the, the health benefits, we can talk, talk about the moral obligation, the, the, the worker rights, the um, um, access to care being the right thing to do. But really, the most important thing that we can do to catalyze better healthcare for workers is to share data on those uh, elements. And, and I I did that on on several occasions with organizations I worked for previously and and today, where I've been able to to share what the impact is overall. So you you talk about the impact on individuals, what it means to a person, whether he's going to go home to his family with um, a number of pre-existing conditions that are well managed, um, that he's got access to care to be able to do that, that he has information, education and awareness around it. Um, the, the possibility of that individual going through a journey as an employee from recruitment right through their career to retirement and to be able to subsequently enjoy their, their retirement. And, and you talk about those arguments emotively and passionately about what you believe is the right thing to do from a medical perspective. And then you also bring information and data to the table. You talk about sickness absence data. Many companies don't have consolidated sickness absence data. They don't understand what the impact is of a mental health uh, um, serious case. They don't understand that it could be six to nine months for a person who is disabled through severe stress or depression. They don't necessarily have information about how long it takes to recover from a preventable cardiovascular illness. Um And they they can't put costs on those things. So the third part of the alignment is not just to show them the sickness absence numbers, but to put costs on them and say, look, this is the factor that you're paying for. You just don't realize that preventive care would cost you less. And that's the final piece of the jigsaw when you're having that conversation is to say, look, emotively, from a medical perspective, it's the right thing to do. From a data perspective, here's the impact. This is what it's costing you in terms of productivity. And from a financial impact, this is how, in fact, you're actually paying more than you should be for the situation that you're allowing to perpetuate by not having a better healthcare and and well-being system. So I've done that on a few occasions. I mean, one one example would be offshore workers um, not having access to a decent uh, baseline medical um, before they go offshore. And and some of them, most of them, in fact, the industry requires that you have at least a baseline medical. But there are additional elements to that medical that would be beneficial to the employee and to the employer Uh, things like measuring uh, his hba1c checking for abnormal blood sugar and wondering if he has underlying diabetes that hasn't been diagnosed for example that intervention alone in terms of reducing cardiovascular risks will likely be a saving to the company ultimately because it reduces Medivax, sickness absence, employee um, and manager time around administering uh, care for people who, who have uh, diabetic uh, hyperglycemic or hyperglycemic episodes offshore. Um, and being able to identify those people with that condition and support them is, is a, a clear example of how you can put in place a low cost intervention to affect a subsequent saving to the company and everybody wins again. This is a win-win strategy. So you look after the the worker, you give them education and awareness, you reduce the likelihood of any sort of incident taking place and you save the company money on uh, medical evacuations uh, from an offshore platform, which can run into significant costs. One element that I, I also want to share is that often the costs are indirect or hidden. So the upfront cost of a medevac sometimes is just the, the seat seat place on a helicopter. You have to pay for the person to be returned to shore. But the indirect and hidden costs are often a factor of maybe 10 times as much as what the direct operational costs of that helicopter seat will be. And they're not often considered and, and they're hard to work out. So having a formula around that and being able to build a business case for the intervention from a medical perspective, partnering with a business an- analyst within the business, great, great thing to do, and it usually w- reaps dividends for everybody.
0: Yeah, the the offshore world is is an interesting one, especially with the you know you have loads of experience in in, in that area. Um, for me, it was it, it's always been, you know, mind blowing, the the thresholds for allowing somebody. Uh, to operate in, on some of those vessels. Um, so, so to give an example, you know, to the listener, um, if, if uh, you're asked a, a series of, of health-related questions, and if, if you, you pass those, um, then you're allowed to, to work offshore. But, but interestingly enough, some of the most, in my, you know, public health lens view, are not you know accounted for so so let's say mental health for instance is is not part of that you know regular threshold which is a difficult one but also smoking you know if, if somebody says they smoke 60 packs uh you know a, a month or, or four packs a day they still meet the requirements to to go offshore <laughs> i mean, there for me that's you know that's that's really interesting but uh i think i think they're looking also at one of the things did you did you do much of, of sort of going on on rigs and whatnot?
1: Yes, I got to go out to to rigs on on at least five occasions uh, in the North Sea and in Saudi Arabia and in the Gulf of Mexico, and um, you know I, I find it a fascinating world actually. I like I like being out there to spend time with people to be at the same table in the canteen area and to understand what the conversations are like and and what the challenges are. You have They have an environment where people are spending, you know, sometimes a month, six weeks uh, or longer on the platform. They have little contact with their family. They are working 12-hour shifts and sometimes the the changes uh, between day and night for them are are quite challenging in terms of sleep deprivation. And um, they get fed really well, Yeah, they provide a really good uh, selection of of choice on the menu. Um, However, the menu is not always that healthy. And if you work in that environment over a long period of time, the combination of stress, sleep deprivation, um, perhaps um, nutrition, and and the tough work, tough physical work that takes place can take its toll on you. Um, so offshore work is a, is a tough environment to be in, and it has um, specific considerations that around mental health are, are really important.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. And, and I think now with the pandemic, you know. Somebody said, "Now every company is a healthcare company because they've had to make, you know, healthcare decisions. Whether you were a jewelry manufacturer or you know made apple pies, uh, you you all had to make decisions to keep your workforce safe. Mm-hmm. But but even even before the pandemic, you were working with with some really interesting non-healthcare organizations and advising them." Um, my my favorite uh story and and one of my my um my most fondest memories was was watching you in action deal with with a insane request um so i, I don't think we're allowed to say the the company or 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 the entertainment that was provided but Suffice to say, it was, I don't know if you remember, it was an organization you looked after. Probably every year they had a, a high sort of VIP event somewhere in Europe. And they had asked you to help with uh, the entertainment, which essentially was was a magic um, sort of a you know, show. Um, and it was, you know, the, the, the medical devices and the setup needed for for that act w- was impossible to get um and and i think it's the only time i've i've seen you slightly break a break a sweat um so i guess my my question is you know in in your your you know your past 20 years you've you've been exposed to stuff that, you know, you and I never trained for, you know, nobody taught us how to how to do this kind of stuff. How do you approach, you know, problems that you've never even, you know, thought of? And and what sort of your, your, your process for these, you know, really complex uh, issues?
1: Well, Maybe the most intricate and complex, and I would say, be interesting, hopefully, uh, uh, occasion when I, when I was involved in, in a, um, a strategy to prevent infectious disease transmission was during the Ebola crisis. I was actually sent um, on behalf of an electric company to Abidjan in Côte d'Ivoire. And the work I was asked to do was to say, how could I make sure that Ebola, if it came to Côte d'Ivoire from the neighboring countries, Uh, How could I make sure that the lights stayed on for parts of, I I think it was one third of the electricity came from this particular um, utilities company just outside Abidjan. And I I went there not knowing much about the company. Um, There was a management team that was in London. There was a a company um, running uh, operations then from a different country with uh, contractors on site and lots of people from different countries, including many local uh, Cote d'Ivoireans and people from Korea and from France as well involved. And that was a multi-stakeholder operation where you had to try and understand what's taking place here. How how do we keep the lights on in Abidjan during Ebola if, if we get uh, suspect cases inside the fence so that they have to shut down part of the operation or the entire operation? That was Just a fascinating, again, challenge. And one of the things that we realized very quickly is that the best intentions can go the wrong direction. So somebody had thought that screening people for a fever during Ebola was a good idea, which seems like the right thing to do. And they brought a, a fever screening camera from South Korea on site and put it in a certain location so that when all the workers were coming in in the morning, they would have their temperature screened. And again, when they were going home, they would have their temperature screened. But what happened was during the day, people would come and go and the temperature locally would get up to 40 degrees, which is above body temperature. And then everybody was pinging on this camera and being alerted as a potential suspect Ebola case. And it was causing chaos and a lot of fear and a lot of people were afraid to come to work as a result of just that particular intervention. That camera being placed in the wrong place at the wrong time, in the wrong circumstances by a well-intentioned person. And it it, it, it nearly shut the lights on part of a capital city for a country. So, for me, you know, the lesson that I learned from that is that you have to really go down to brass tacks, get involved with people, find out what's happening at their uh, location where they're operational. You can't sit in an office in a capital city and hope to understand the the challenges that they face, the resources that they have, or the uh, solutions that you might be able to put in place unless you go visit. Um, and so, you know, that was that was a really, I guess, uh, seminal moment for me in, in terms of a project to be involved in.
0: Um, well, that sounds yeah. like it must have been fascinating and scary at the same time.
1: Yeah, it was. It was really interesting. I, I, I did a, an assessment of the local hospitals to see what kind of capability they would have. We looked at the accommodation units to see um, what quality and standard of accommodation that workers had. Uh, who were coming in and out of that particular uh, utilities company each day. And um, we went inside and we talked to everybody. And we, we came up with a significant uh, set of controls and protections, which unfortunately you know, were never tested to destruction. We, we didn't get uh, Ebola cases and, and uh, Cote d'Ivoire stayed Ebola free as far as I remember. I don't think they had any subsequent cases
0: yeah no understanding the local you know context and and being on the ground is uh, as you say i think essential, especially for you know pandemic infectious disease control and and it reminds me of of a story um friend of mine uh, Argentine doctor emiliano worked worked many years for for doctors without borders and and he told me one time he um he was doing education sort of presentation in, in a local community in, in um uh, on, on one of his missions and he was showing them sort of these these posters and I think you know slides on on um on malaria and explaining how the mosquito would, would carry malaria and, and how they you know they, they it could lead to you know cerebral malaria and so they had to do you know use the the bed nets and All this kind of stuff and they just looked at him for the whole hour and didn't say anything and and um, and then at the end of the presentation he said any any questions and nobody dared raise their hand except for you know the the eldest uh, and wisest uh, in in sort of the the chief and and um, he raises and he said he said doctor, there's you know I don't think we have that issue here because those mosquitoes are huge and the ones we have are, are uh, are just you know the normal size. We don't have anything the size of that poster flying around uh, here. So it was it was uh, it was an eye opening you know experience for, for him. Um, I thought a good story as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, people's health beliefs. Um, it should never be taken for granted. You know, we, we don't know what it is that people understand and, and we we don't know what upbringing they've had, whether they've had a, access to a scientific education or background. And I think that that um, can complicate matters a, a lot. Um, culture plays such a role in this and and often organizations take that for granted that, that there is one culture, but there isn't. There, All organizations, all multinationals are multicultural. You have... Um, South American um, uh, understanding of culture is very different to uh, of medicine and healthcare is very different to African, very different to Asian, and I, I think that um, even within uh, groups of people, how men and women access care is different, um, and age groups. If you think of the diversity and the demographics uh, that we have across companies, I
0: I could speak to you for for hours. Uh, you have some of the most Amazing, interesting stories and and great insight into you know different cultures and and uh, are probably one of the best travel doctors you know I I know. Um, last question from my side: What is the one thing that you have um, discovered that have tried? That has made the biggest impact on your health and, and it can be anything from you know an app, a, a practice, something that in your life you've come across and 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 if you could recommend one thing, you know, to to the listeners out there, what, what would that be? Um that's a tricky question. Um,
1: I think the one thing that has stood the test of time for me that has meant the most in terms of health improvement for either me or my friends or my family or my patients um, or the employees who I look after in different places has has been good nutrition. And it it may may not sound glamorous or sexy or, you know, highly technical, but nutrition has such an effect on all of the inflammatory pathways that, that cause disease. So whether it's cardiovascular or diabetes or obesity or um cancer um, or even mental health, yeah, good nutrition is is a foundation for prevention for all of those things and um, you know my mother when she was sick, she had a, a episode of cancer a few years ago. One of the things that, that we could do to empower her was to give her control over her her nutritional choices so that she could actually help heal herself. And it's something that's forgotten by a lot of doctors. A lot of doctors say, well, here's the medication, here's the surgery, here's the plan, but it doesn't include what can the the, worker, the, the, the person, the ill person, the patient or the human being do for themselves. And nutrition is a really important part of that. If, if, if I can give that one small piece of advice to myself and to anybody else, it's um, nu- nutrition is, is the foundation for good health.
0: Well, that's that's great. Thanks for that, John. And and um, and you'll 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 be happy to hear our guest, a nutrition expert from WHO, about the the uh, the pitfalls on plant-based diets, and and how you know this this booming industry. Uh, sometimes we we take uh, you know for for. Um, as a fact that that they will be healthier, but in in reality, if if you look at you know some of the sodium content, you know in in some of these they're they're actually not. Um, so it's it's I think it's it's a growing area of interest that um, that is that is emerging. But but you're right. I mean the, the food is you know I I you know studied you know to 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 become a chef, and so food is my certainly my biggest passion. So you're you're definitely preaching to. To, to the uh, the chef's choir here. But um, yeah,
1: if, if I can make a recommendation for anybody who's interested in nutrition as part of, of overall health. Um, there's a book by um, a doctor who's a New New York neurologist, uh, I believe, called David Serban Shriver. And um, the book is called anti cancer. And it's, a, it's a program for reducing inflammation and inflammatory factors that, that can lead to uh, uh, the genesis of cancer in, in your cells and in your tissues. Um, but in fact, it 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 it's, it's a final common pathway for a lot of illnesses, as I said before. So that particular book by David Servant-Shriver, I would highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in good health, not just for an anti-cancer perspective, but for many other reasons as well.
0: I will add that to my Amazon list after this. So, uh, so John, uh, I just want to thank you again for for uh, giving giving us your time, um, all your, your great insight, your great stories. Um, hopefully, we'll we'll have you again uh, soon. But um, on on uh, behalf of the podcast, thanks thanks for joining us. That's
1: a real pleasure. Thank you, Rod, and thank you for having me today.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please click subscribe. You can follow all of our updates and learn more about how we can help you protect your global workforce by visiting internationalsos.com.